Hello and welcome to another episode of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast with your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey everybody and welcome to what is our 50th episode of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Cool. Wish I had one of them horns to blow. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Confetti. <laughs> we have a really interesting one for you today, which is really going to test that grey matter of yours. We have with us Dr. Michael P. Masters, who is a professor of biological anthropology at Montana Tech in Butte, Montana. He received a PhD in anthropology from the Ohio State University in 2009, where he specialized in human evolutionary anatomy, archaeology, and biomedicine. Dr. Masters spent the following decade developing a broad academic background that unites the fields of anthropology, astronomy, astrobiology, and physics to examine the premise that UFOs and aliens are simply our distant human descendants, returning from the future to study us in their own hominin evolutionary past. His new book, Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon, challenges readers to consider the possibilities that while cultivating conversations about our own ever-evolving understanding of time and time travel. Welcome to the show, Dr. Michael P. Masters. Hi, Michael. Hello. Thanks for having me. I got your book. I downloaded it on Kindle. And right at the start, you start talking about an incident that your father actually witnessed. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that, just to give a little bit of a background of maybe how your interest first got piqued? Yeah, absolutely. It started a little bit before I was born, I guess. I don't know the exact year, but he's a veterinarian. Grew up in a very rural part of Northeast Ohio, and most of the, the calls he would get, the farm calls, were in Amish country. And he one night was out with a colleague, and they were driving up over this hill, and they noticed a a glowing bright light in the distance and it came toward them and stopped and, and I guess watched them for a little bit, went back across the horizon and took up into the sky. And yeah, he just became very interested in in what that could be. It's it's obviously something that leaves a mark on your mind and start asking questions. And hearing that story for the first time, hearing him talk about it really piqued my interest in it and started somewhat of a lifelong pursuit to find out more about it. Do you know if he had any kind of interest in it prior to that experience or was that something that just hit him out of the blue and then totally changed his opinion on it? Yeah, it seems to have been something that that just kind of happened. I don't think he really ever gave it much thought. Honestly, after it, it, it affected him for a while and then you know, there weren't repeated encounters or anything like that. So it sort of faded away from everyday speech. We didn't talk about it very much, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely impactful at the time. It seems to have, have trickled down toward me as well. And, and I picked up and, and started looking into it more after learning of that incident. Well, before we actually get into your theory, which I think is a really interesting one in terms of the approach that you've taken it, I think it's something that the UFO field or the alien field or whatever you want to sort of term it, I think has needed is a, is a fresh eyes almost into the subject. Yeah. And yeah. I know that we've, we've had a number of guests on our show, for instance, who've talked 
about aliens and UFOs, etc. And nobody that we've spoken to so far really can give us any indication as to what, if, if this is actually happening, these things are and where they come from. Your theory, however, answers these questions. So before we actually go into the theory, how has it been received by your sort of academic peers? Pretty well so far. I had a, a book release on Friday. The actual you know, full release of the book was on the 22nd. And I would say that, you know, easily 20% of the people there that, that purchased the book were, were PhDs, were my academic colleagues in nanotechnology, biology, anthropology. And they, they've really been extremely supportive. It's been great to see and has really been encouraging and, and trying to move this forward. When, when you start talking about something like this, when you start doing something like this openly, you never really know what the response is going to be. And it was a little intimidating at first, but seeing the overwhelming support from my academic peers has, has really been encouraging and has, has kept me motivated to keep going with this. It's actually interesting because thinking about your theory, it almost makes you go, well, wait, how come nobody else really thought of that before? You know, it's just, it makes sense. Yeah, it isn't. Well, I, I, it came to me independently when I was, when I was about eight years old, but as I researched this more and began talking to people more about it, I realized that this, this theory has been around for a while. I discussed some, some individuals in my book and some cases that really highlight this time travel aspect of it. And so I, I don't claim ownership over the theory. It's, it's one that I, developed independently many years ago, but it's it's also one that's been around for a while. And I think a big part of why that is, is because it's so intuitive. It, it just, it tends to make the most sense when you think about exactly. all of the physical characteristics of these actual beings, the, the bipedalism, the, the you know, similar characteristics in their facial shape and their cranial shape and pentadactyly having the five fingers on your hands and feet, and any number of cultural characteristics as well. So when taken holistically, when looked at in the context of long-term evolutionary changes in both our culture and biology throughout the hominin past, it, it really does seem to be a more intuitive model. So it, it makes sense that it has been around for a while. And obviously, the dominant model right now is the extraterrestrial hypothesis that they're coming from another planet. But there's a tremendous number of problems with that related to distances, the amount of time, it would take to travel through space, cargo, limitations in the speed at which we can travel, how we would find each other. So considering all of the available evidence, it does seem to be the more parsimonious explanation, I think. Hmm. So what is this theory then for people who haven't read your book? Sure. I refer to them as extratempestrials, the, the Latin root for time, replacing terra, meaning outside of Earth, so outside of time. But simply the book looks at long-term evolutionary changes in the hominin lineage, mostly focusing on biological changes. Many of the factors that have led to these changes, especially in recent human history after domestication, agriculture, a uh, number of things associated with our cranial facial anatomy, specifically that's primarily what my dissertation research was on and my biomedical research today using MRIs and other clinical data. So if we look at these long-term evolutionary changes in the context of what we look like now, and if we project those forward without making any assumptions or without speculating about what might happen to us in the future to cause them, we don't really even need to, to speculate about what these forces may be because 
regardless of what environment we were in or what our social organization or political organization was like, the, the ecology, the, the environment that we were in, these same dominant cranial facial trends of primarily increased neurocranial size and neurocranial globularity or a more balloon-headed characteristic, a reduced face, smaller teeth, smaller face, those main traits that define our lineage beyond upright walking, if continued into the future, would seem to, to match what's so commonly described in, in extratempestrial reports and, and reports of close encounters. So the model just it looks at it in the context of long-term changes projected forward and, and kind of ties in these alien creatures as being a future form of ourselves coming back through time to study us in their own hominin evolutionary past. Why would they do that? Honestly, if I had that technology, if I had a time machine, that's exactly what I would be doing too. As, as a paleoanthropologist, as a biological anthropologist, we study what little skeletal material we can find from very old hominins, uh, mostly their preserved teeth, their preserved skeletal material, their fossilized skeletal material. But if we could actually go back in time and, and pick them up, do, do a medical examination. And, and the same way that's so commonly described in these abduction reports, taking skin samples, hair samples, fecal samples, uh, sperm and egg, uh, in order to study genetics and, and evolutionary processes, we would have a wealth of information far beyond that which could ever be gleaned simply from doing archaeological excavations and paleoanthropological excavations. So I, I think the purpose primarily, or at least what we see in abduction accounts, is most likely that they're anthropologists, linguists, cultural anthropologists, possibly medical doctors, geneticists from the future doing research into their own past. But with that said, it is possible too that some of these encounters, especially ones where it's just sightings of a, of a metallic disc in the sky, there could be some aspect of tourism to that as well. It could be where we develop the ability to travel backward in time and, and simply observe past ways of life. I think a lot of people would pay great money to be able to do that today and, and most likely would in the deep future as well. Yeah, I was thinking that's a heck of a field trip, isn't it? For, yeah. for <laughs> Let's take you back so you can see. Yeah, and some of the some of the most visited tourist sites today are ones that that have something to do with the ancient past, the pyramids of Giza. I forget what the name of it is, but it's in Cambodia. Again, you know, ruins, temples. Same thing with uh, the Aztecs and the Maya and the Inca. Machu Picchu. Yeah. Machu Picchu, absolutely. Like it, it generates huge revenue. So if you could actually just sit back, you know, observe from the clouds, not really allow them to know that you're there and, and take in that lifestyle, that way of living as it was happening at those times, I think there would be a huge market for that. Was it John Grisham who wrote this? But wasn't it, are you saying that we are actually Jurassic Park? <laughs> or wasn't that with Michael Crichton it was, wasn't it, yeah. who, who wrote that? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. so it, it's quite interesting to think that, you know, maybe we are the Jurassic Park, you know. I spoke to, funnily enough, I spoke to a friend of mine and a colleague that I work with, and we were chatting about an interview that Bella and I were going to do, which actually went out this last week, which was with Paul Sinclair. And my colleague in work, his name's Andy, so shout out to Andy. We were talking about the animal mutilations that Paul Sinclair deals with. And I asked Andy, you know, what he thought about that. And he actually said that he believed that because he's done quite a bit of research himself into into a lot of UFO based stuff. Uh -huh. And he said that when you look at it, the animal mutilations tend to be cyclical. 
they, they'll happen for a couple of years and then they'll stop and then they'll suddenly pick up again huh. for a couple of years. And that it will happen is almost cyclical, but all around the world at that point. And he, and he said that his theory was that it could be, not necessarily, he wasn't mentioning extra tempestrials in the way that, that your theory suggests. He was suggesting that it could actually be aliens, but that they are bringing almost like college kids along to yeah. to this country to see the animals or to this world to see the animals that we've got on this planet etc cetera, etc cetera. and then yeah. it's cyclical because they would kind of take them back they would graduate they would do their thing and then when the next influx of, of students suddenly arrived then we would see these visitations come back i just wondered how you thought that might sort of fit with your theory it kind of almost goes along what you were saying there with the people coming back to study us yeah, absolutely. And the, these mutilations are, are quite common, especially in the area where I live in ranch land, basically, of, of western, southwest Montana. And yeah, it very much could be some sort of teaching tool or, or more likely maybe sampling. I've seen some reports where there's they're describing trying to get a sense of the environment, the, the animal, the ecology, the life that exists at these times. And, and that that would seem to fit with the cyclical nature of, of this phenomenon if if it is, you know, collecting data at specific points in time, a specific snapshot in time, you would expect to try to get a representative sample from different parts of the world at that time and then s- sample possibly in the same mission. You know, if you're mm. able to traverse time in this way, simply hop forward 20 years, 40 years, and then still collect data from those time periods. So yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before. I wasn't aware that there was so much pattern or, or cyclicity to this, but that's that's really interesting. Can you sort of describe maybe a eureka moment that maybe happened to you or, or occurred for you when, when, you, were when eight. you suddenly? <laughs> sorry, when he was eight. Well, yeah, no, I no, I eight. just no, I just wondered whether there was suddenly a, a moment where I appreciate you you had the idea from when you were eight, but maybe uh, you know I don't know whether you, you were looking at evidence and then suddenly you went ah actually this fits because I know that there's a possibility where if you kind of have an idea in your head you can almost skew evidence to kind of fit yeah, what absolutely I, I, well, I, I know there's a name for it but I can't think well, of it I'm Com- confirmation bias it's that's it confirmation, confirmation bias yeah well I'm interested to know what it was when he was eight that you know led down this road so what happened how did you have it in your head when you were eight yeah the the initial moment I looked up on the the bookshelf, my my father trying to figure out what he had seen when he was out with his colleague on a farm call, bought a book called Communion by Whitley Stryber, oh, which yes. is yeah, we know a that. Very, that's a well known that's yeah. a well known book. And on the cover of the book, which most of your listeners are probably also familiar with, is that sort of quintessential large headed, big eyed, small faced alien creature. So I remember having this this very distinctive flash. I was standing in the living room by myself it's it's one of the earliest and clearest memories i have and sort of envisioned this the schematic of a, a hominin a chimpanzee like creature a modern human and then this alien from the book cover and and yeah it, you know i talk about this in the book cuz i think it's important to acknowledge confirmation bias and and how that could have skewed my own perception of this phenomenon if i was only looking for evidence to support this notion that I had uh, developed at age eight, but to the contrary, you know, I, I really do try to step back and look at this as objectively as possible in the context of the, the extraterrestrial model, you know, alien visitors from different planets. And 
but really the more I looked into it, there, there was kind of another aha moment or uh, another sort of revelationary period when I was in graduate school. And I really got the chance to, to travel around the world and, and look at all of these different skulls. I got to work in Italy and France a couple of times and South Africa on a couple of occasions and work at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History in Ohio, which has one of the best modern human collections. And in doing that, it was, it was more tangible. It was easier to really see just how much change has taken place, especially over the last 800,000 to a million years, and especially in our craniofacial anatomy. So, so the initial moment was when I was eight, and it, it set me down this path of trying to find out more. But, but really, I think it was once I got to graduate school and, and got the chance to really take high-level classes in anatomy and and biological anthropology, paleoanthropology, to go on digs, to to work in South Africa at three and a half million year old fossil hominin sites and Neanderthal site in southern France, and to really get a, a, a deep, clear picture of what our evolutionary anatomy and the, the history of these changes was. So it was, I guess, a, a two major points in my life when that happened. And what was the process of sort of mapping the the facial anatomy forward? Did you use some kind of computer rendering or something and, and sort of follow the trajectory of the changes? Or how did you do that? No, at some point in the future, I'd like to. Initially, that was the main objective is I was going to describe or or yeah use some sort of 3d modeling and in in chapter 10 of the book to some extent i do that but with a specific aspect of recent human evolution which is uh specifically craniofacial feminization it's an aspect of domestication and and self-domestication where we've been domesticating ourselves in the same way that we have many many other animals. So in separating size from shape using what's known as geometric morphometrics, which is a very common tool in biological anthropology, once you take size out of it, you can see these shape changes going from a hypermasculine to a hyperfeminine craniofacial shape. And in this trend that's been occurring where men and women are developing more feminine characteristics, I was able to slide the, the warping of this 3D Cartesian grid using the geometric morphometric analysis and the software that comes with it in order to sort of project what we might look like if there is this continued trend toward craniofacial feminization. And you can see these images in chapter 10 of the book where as you get farther toward that extreme female shape, you start to get these very extratempestrial shape characteristics, that big bulbous head, the small face, the more rounded eye orbits. And as you go more toward the extreme male form, it's more reminiscent of our early hominin ancestors and, and the low sloping forehead, the projecting face. So this, this isn't to say that that's what we will look like. It's just an aspect of one trend, one part of our recent evolutionary history. If that trend continued, it helps to project those shape changes forward. But there's a lot of limitations associated with really trying to predict at what speed these changes are taking place. And a lot of it simply has to do with sampling bias. As we look back through the archaeological record, the farther back we go, looking at our hominin ancestors, the less available material there is. And you also have limitations associated with time period within group variation due to age differences, sex differences, geographic differences. People still look different in other parts of the world, but going back 50,000 years, 100,000 years, there were multiple different species 
that existed. So, so how do you account for that variation going forward? Now that we're one species, it's obviously much easier. So I didn't really feel that it was fair to do that just yet because I felt that it would have been more speculative than anything else. And, and to do something like that, to really get a sense of the time frame for these future morphological changes, I'd like to be confident that it was really rooted in, in something and, and not just speculating about about how these changes might take place over a, a specific period of time. So unfortunately, I haven't gotten there yet. Uh, hopefully in the future, we'll be able to collaborate with some other anthropologists, computer scientists, graphic designers, and maybe really come up with, with some really tangible quantitative metric that can be shown in, in 3D. How much do you think that our behavior will affect our makeup, our, our physical makeup in the future. Because the reason why I ask this is actually quite topical because I've been working away this week and I've come home and Bella led me into the living room and said, watch this. And then she proceeded to say, <laughs> hey, and then a certain other word, which I'm not going to say now because goodness knows how many devices in our, in our house <laughs> will go off. And then she said, lights on, and our lights suddenly turned on. And then she right. said, light one off, light two, 50%, et cetera, et cetera. And she wow. has, in the week that I've been away, totally augmented our, our home. So That's great. Well, yes, you say. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Until they revolt and take over exactly. your household and hold you hostage. Exactly, yeah. So my sort of question, I suppose, is that looking at how we are changing as as modern people if you like if you want to if you want to use that I use that term very loosely but we are suddenly becoming less active you know we're expecting more automation in our lives now and surely that's going to have an effect generations down the line on our physical makeup uh, we were talking actually before we came on air about our ancestry and, and you were talking about Wales as well. And Wales is built on miners. And if you travel down into the valleys in Wales today, you see people there are very stocky. They're quite short and they're very stocky. And a lot of people say that's because obviously the background is they worked down the mines. They didn't get a lot of sunlight but they were very strong. They did a very manual job for, you know, 12, 16 hours a day. And that was just the way they sort of developed. And I just wonder whether, as more of a support to your theory, that we will end up these spindly, slim, very little muscle tone figures well, because of our wives. Well, well that... <laughs> <laughs> but see, they're not going to, you know... They are future us's. They don't need to be badass looking now because they just probably have these lasers and be like, I don't like you. Poof, you're gone. Yeah, exactly. you, you know, so so they can be little stick things. They just need a big head so that their big old brain can think of all of these things to create yeah. so that. Well, that's why I'm asking the PhD <laughs> and not you. <laughs> yeah, and that's been the that's been the going trend ever really since three point three million years ago when we first started making stone tools. And when when I teach about these things in anthropology classes, I bring out these early stone tools. They're known as Oldovan tools. Uh, simple unifacially flaked little nasty pieces of of rock that they knocked a, a one side off of and, and made a tool with. But but the computers we have today are cell phones, wrenches, forks. Anything you can think of, any tool that we use today is the direct descendant of those early stone tools three million years ago. And, and there's big leaps forward. There's different periods where we developed something that had an effect on our society. It had an effect on our language, on our morphology. Fire is probably one of the best examples, about 1.8 
million years ago, we started to harness the power of fire and, and used it ever since. And it allowed our faces to shrink down and get out of the way of the expanding mm. brain because we could cook our food first. We could start that digestion process. It allowed our guts to shrink down even farther. With a reduced gut, it allowed for more energy to go to the brain. It's what's known as the expensive tissue hypothesis. But that change was another cultural change. I mentioned agriculture a couple of times because it's vastly important to this conversation. And that's really when we started to kind of differentiate into these different roles, these occupational specializations. There were people that were out working in the fields. They were toiling very hard to, to produce food, but they were able to produce enough of a surplus that other individuals didn't have to do that anymore. And now roughly less than 1%, at least of the American population, is involved in agriculture because we, we've intensified it to the extent that we're able to live off of the surplus of what that 1% produces. And that separation of the people and the energy necessary to get the food themselves, outsourcing that to someone else means that we can kind of become more lazy or less fit and, and have automation. We can have machines do things for us, turn on our lights for us or drive us to a specific location without having to walk or saddle up a horse. So it's, it's been a continuing process. And I, I honestly can't predict what's what it's going to be like in the future. Obviously, you'd think we would have more automation and more robotics, uh, having robots do more things for us in the same way that it has been over the last 20 years. So eventually, yeah, I mean, you'll probably be able to just take a pill. You won't even have to cook anymore. You just take the pill and quite possibly. Yeah. You, know, you see that in a lot of science yeah. fiction films where it's just, they get all of their nourishment from a, a little energy packed pill. So yeah, I mean, and a lot of, a lot of these abduction reports, they are described as being tall, spindly, almost like insects and other ones. And, and those individuals may be from a, a much more distant point in our future as well where they've had longer to go through a number of these continued evolutionary changes. Others are others still are described as having hair, blue eyes, looking somewhat Norwegian Nordic, or yeah. Swedish. Yeah, and so they're probably a more proximate point in time relative to our current position in time, and, and they still have many of the same traits that we have, just slightly larger, tend to be blue eyes for some reason, uh, blonde hair, and they don't really look that different. But yeah, as you go further into the future, that may help explain some of these these skinny, spindly insect or almost reptile-like characteristics. I've watched loads of things on television, on History Channel, and they talk about these major sort of technological things that people from, you know, a million years ago or whatever wouldn't know. And they're saying, well, they get it from visitors from somewhere else and they teach them this sort of skill that mm -hmm. they didn't have before. What do you think about that? Or do you just don't really have an opinion? No, I, I do. As, as an anthropologist and as an archaeologist, I, I run an archaeological field school out here and have worked on numerous archaeological sites. So it's, it's something that we take seriously. And I think it's important to, to speak to that because, yeah, this idea that Generally, I think you're describing the ancient astronaut theory or the ancient aliens. Or whatever you want to call and, it. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, obviously, I don't think it has anything to do with space aliens for yeah. reasons I discuss in detail in the book. But, but I also don't think we really need that explanation if you look at the long history of incremental change in our culture, in our our ability to build things. There, It seems like there's leaps forward, but that's mostly because... Most people aren't studying 
the whole long history and all of the different sites and all of the different time periods that are associated with those sites. But when you put that together, it it isn't there aren't really major leaps. There aren't giant jumps. It's all in how you look acquired. at it. Yeah. And it's it's kind of in a way, it's just dividing up a continuous long history of change into these discrete groups and saying, well then there were pyramids. So that must have been something that was, you know, the result of outside influence. But but we don't we don't need that explanation. And and most of my archaeological colleagues are are very upset about how space aliens are attributed to everything that's been accomplished in human history. We 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 have a very good understanding of culture change on this planet and there doesn't really appear to be any point in that 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 evolutionary past cultural biological where we can really point to it and say yes something happened there that indicates outside influence discussing outside influence i think you've probably answered this question already in your last answer but some people obviously believe again in terms of being visited that maybe the visitors are the answer to the missing link between apes and say early hominy what's your thoughts on that there, there really is no missing link. That's an that's a, an old idea that dates back to when we really didn't have many fossil representatives. When we had gaps in the fossil record, I guess you could say. But but going from when we were apes, when we were hominids, to when we became hominins, where we stood upright, we we have a, a really good representation of of that transition. We have a, a lot of skeletal material. As I mentioned, there are innate biases as you go back farther into the past. There's just less available simply because of preservation conditions. Mm. But, but we, beginning in, in the Miocene about 6 million years ago with Rorentugonensis, Elanthropus chadensis, and then with Artipithecus ramidus, all of the Australopithecines, again, it's the same situation as with the, the pyramids and the megalithic structures where it appears as though there's jumps. It appears as though there's gaps, but there's not. If, if you study it, and you study the details of that that evolutionary change in our hominid lineage, you'll see this long continuous period of change. And it has been accelerating over the last 500 to 800,000 years, especially in our craniofacial anatomy. Most of early hominid evolution was just in our postcranial anatomy, adapting to this new form of upright walking, which also affected our skull and our skull shape and is largely what allowed our brains to grow bigger within the neurocranium. But but if you look at the whole history of hominin evolution and the morphological changes, there really are no missing links. There are no gaps anymore. There's parts where we have more representation, parts where we have less, but you can still see that long continuous change throughout. So I don't think I don't think we necessarily need an extra tempestrial influence and certainly not an extraterrestrial influence in in looking at this history of hominin change on this planet. So going back to time travel then, there's obviously two different camps when it comes to time travel. Those who believe that the past shouldn't be messed with and those who say it can't be messed with. Yeah. Where do you sit on that? Well, I, I do discuss that in the book a lot, partly because it's it's very important. It's very important to this argument. It's very important to understand this model, but also because I find it absolutely fascinating. It's It's been one of the most interesting parts of this journey for me is is to really study time and what time is. You know, we still don't really fully grasp the concept of it, but in, in physics and the dominant worldview among physicists and most of the the physical evidence suggests that we exist as part of this giant block of time, and they refer to it as block time or landscape time, where 
all events that have ever happened are happening now and will ever happen in the future are all part of this massive four-dimensional block of space-time. So we move through it because of our consciousness. We have this brain and eyes and a nose. We can sense things and we make sense of this static 4D block time by moving through it as biological organisms, much in the same way that if you think about a movie reel and you look at one part of it, you look back at what came before in that movie and you can also look forward about what's going to come. It's already written. It's already there. You just haven't gotten there yet in the movie. And the same thing, physicists see time in the same way, that there's all of these events that exist as part of this massive landscape of time. So then when you start talking about moving among different points within it, you don't really have to worry about changing anything. And, and this is you know, where the, the physicists started to divide. You had Stephen Hawking arguing for the chronology protection conjectures, saying that we need to protect the past. We can't allow time travel. He's saying that time travel is not even possible for you know, things larger than essentially an atom or a quark because of the mass and a lot of paradoxes that he held on to. But many, many other physicists disagreed with him on that. They saw that there isn't a butterfly effect. There isn't. We don't have to worry about changing the future by going into the past and accidentally altering something because any interaction with the past was always a part of that past. And any aspect of that that exists in the future before you left is already a part of that future. It's already integrated across space-time as part of this closed time-like curve. So I tend to side with Igor Novikov, Novikov's self-consistency principle, Klinkhammer, uh, Kip Thorne was another advocate of this, this self-consistency. And it makes sense too. In looking at everything we know about time now, it's been studied in quantum mechanics. It's been studied with classical physics, and everything seems to point to, or at least the dominant model right now, the dominant worldview among physicists, is that we don't have to worry about changing the past or changing the future because it all exists as one static interconnected entity. I know that I heard you on another show, and I, I know that you used the grandfather paradox as an example. And for those who are not aware of that, you said that if someone goes back in time and actually kills their grandfather, for instance, that the paradox suggests that they would then cease to exist. But actually, that can't happen because if they cease to exist, then they wouldn't have been able to come back in time and kill the grandfather. Absolutely, yeah. It's known as a consistency paradox, also something that, that Russian physicist Igor Novikov discussed throughout most of his career. Yeah, if you are alive, you didn't kill your grandfather. And mm. there's no way that you can go back and do that. Not because of some protection of the past, but simply because it's not a part of that past. It's not, your existence indicates that that didn't happen and it's never going to happen because it just doesn't exist as part of the physical reality of the universe that we live in, of this, this block of time. But yeah, the consistency paradoxes are really interesting. There's some great research that just came out of Australia. I think his name was Martin Ringbauer, and his, his he was doing PhD research and looking at this question of the grandfather paradox with particle physics and and understanding it in the, the context of closed timelike curves. And I, I discussed this in more detail in the book, but it's one of many examples of recent research, at least since the 1970s, when they really started to dig deeply into this, that that indicate that we really don't have to worry about changes to the past or any sort of 
paradox because everything remains inherently self-consistent throughout. Well, that makes me sad because now all the Back to the Future movies just don't even work, do they? <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of time travel <laughs> scenarios don't. And it's so funny, too. You'll, you'll be watching. I, I obviously have a vested interest in this, and it's something I've been very interested in since I was uh, probably in, in college. I, I got a lot of books by Paul Davies and Igor Navakov, Kip Thorne, others. But it's, it's always been tremendously interesting to me, so I pay close attention whenever there's some sort of time travel scenario in pop culture films and 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 they just don't even try half the time <laughs> they'll, they'll just start down this road there was even one i was watching a couple of weeks ago where the characters that were involved in the scenario that was just getting more and more complex looked at each other and just bailed they were like uh, i forget exactly how it was phrased but they were like do you understand any of this the other one's like no i don't either all right, well, let's just pretend this happens. And then they didn't even bother to write an actual <laughs> an actual outcome. They just let the characters say, yeah, nobody understands this. Let's just go about our business. That's but just lazy it is really writing. Interesting. <laughs> it's very lazy. It's very lazy, but it's also complicated. You know, it takes, it is. It it takes is. a lot to think about this. And I, I happen to love it. I think it's absolutely fascinating and, and was like I said, it's one of my favorite parts about writing this book. It reminds me of a, of a review that we had on iTunes. Someone actually put a review on iTunes about our show. It said, great to listen to when baked. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was, that was brilliant. That, I think that goes for most things, actually. <laughs> um, you mentioned Stephen Hawking earlier, and I know that he believed that if there was such a thing as time travel, that they would have already made themselves known to us. And and I know that he, I think, organized a party. And yeah, of course, no one turned up. Sounds like one of my parties. <laughs> but if the theory that you're presenting is correct, then do you think they will eventually make contact with us? And what do you think might be that trigger? I do, actually. I, actually, I end the book with that question because inevitably people ask, when are we going to look like this? When's this going to happen? When are we going to have this technology? We can't know. There's no way we can know. Occasionally they make me guess, but that's all it is. It's a guess. I don't have any more insight into this than anyone else. But but if I throw out a number that's usually in the tens of thousands, they're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a testable hypothesis. You're right. We can know simply by continuing to exist or not exist. You still test the hypothesis, even if we destroy ourselves. And falsify it obviously but in in looking toward that future so far out the the amount of time it would take for us to develop this technology and to use it and to get these more advanced hominin cranial facial characteristics is far off in the future and they say oh that's kind of sad you know i'd like to know now i'd like to know in my lifetime but but if they are coming back from the future thus far it's been very covert it's been very mm. under the radar, just watching us, observing us, picking people up in very remote places. But wouldn't, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but wouldn't you do that as an anthropologist yourself if you were, I know there's been cases where people have gone to, you know, remote places where there's been a tribe that's been untouched and they suddenly go into it and they've, you know, I'm not going to swear, but messed it up. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, and yeah. So, so I think now the, the general rule is that if you're going to go into these places, you observe and you, you don't take anything in and you don't take anything out. And mm-hmm. is, is that correct? Yeah, there's a, a great paper called Steel Axes for Stone Age People that details just how much anthropologists used to muck up cultures by trying to study them. We used to give people cigarettes, uh, chewing gum, candy to talk to us, yeah. people without people without dentists, you know, before we knew that 
that tobacco is so bad for us. And, and we try not to, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot, but there are still some undiscovered cultures, but yeah, we, we try to stay away from them. We give them a lot of diseases simply by going there and, and being a part of those groups. So, so absolutely. I, I think that's a, a major factor in trying to understand this phenomenon is the elusiveness of them. If they traveled all the way across the universe for possibly thousands of years to get here, depending on where they were coming from in space, you'd expect them to get out and make formal contact. But the elusiveness of this phenomenon, them being covert in their operations, picking people up in these remote areas is sort of a testament to the temporal, intertemporal aspects of it. So at some point, though, going back to the original question, at some point, we might not have to wait until we become them to really know more about this. They could let us know at whatever point in in our ensuing future, whatever point they chose to to fill us in on this, to just connect space-time in a much more holistic way uh, relative to to what we see now with kind of sightings or these abduction reports in the, in the near future, it could be as common to meet someone from a different time as it is now to meet someone from a different continent. It's just, it's up to them as to when that might be. I wonder if they could ever get that far ahead that they don't realize that they actually come from us and they're looking at us after going, who are they? Where, you know, yeah. where did they come from? Yeah. I, I think looking, looking forward, it's easier to make that separation. Like, like mm-hmm. if I went back and picked up Homo erectus, they I'd probably be coming down from the sky, you know, and, and something that was able to bend space time, like, like a UFO. And, and they would see the differences. They'd be constructing the other through these differences that we have. And especially my relative hair, hairlessness, my, my big head, small face, small teeth, things like that, the strange technology. And they, they may rightly assume that I came from a different planet based yeah. on all of those things. But but looking back, I think it I think there would have to be some sort of major catastrophe where just all knowledge and all records were lost. And and I I think if we get to the point that we're still functioning as as a society well enough to construct time machines and to have these collaborative research missions into the past indicates that, that we'll probably still understand our humanity throughout the past. And and obviously, you know, I make the case that these encounters are them trying to find out more about it, but I, I think they'll still understand us as human and, and their human ancestors. You mentioned earlier that there were some individuals and cases in the book that really sort of spoke to you. Can you leave us with maybe a little teaser of one of those? Yeah, one of my favorite ones uh, also was in Australia. I believe her name was Amy Rylance, K-Australia, I believe. But it was witnessed by two other individuals, her being pulled out of her bed and through this window. And she was found, I think it was like 800 kilometers away from where she was taken, but only an hour and a half after she was taken. So there's so no way she could have... That distance, to travel that distance would take almost 10 hours by car. Mm. She was found 90 minutes later, 800 kilometers away, but she claimed she was abducted for several days. And when they took her to the hospital and did an examination, they found that she hadn't eaten for, for multiple days and that her body hair had grown out. And it was clear that she had been gone for much longer than 90 minutes. And and honestly, that that scenario 
is best explained in the context of time travel. I don't know how else it, it could yeah. be, honestly, uh, other than she was taken, she was brought back farther from where she was, but also brought back at a time that was closer to when she was taken than what she had actually experienced in in her biological and cognitive passage of time. So that's that that to me is one of my favorite cases because it really does point to the the intertemporal aspect of this phenomenon. This is I promise you my last question. <laughs> We've got people who who believe in conspiracy theories etc that listen to our show. I suppose a question from them would be if they are extratempestrial time travelers, what do you think would be the government's reasons for not making that public? Most things that have to do with governments have to do with money and war, it seems like. And I could see the age-old arms race being a factor in this. If, you know, say say a, a crash did happen in Roswell in 1947 and, and the U.S. government specifically got their hands on this technology that's far advanced, far exceeds anything that we had at that time and even today, they would be highly incentivized to keep that as quiet as possible because mm-hmm. in in the context of this arms race, you're only in a superior position if nobody else knows what you have. Mm. And and they leak out this technology. Like I remember when the stealth bomber came out and that Black Hawk uh, fighter jet that came out, they had had that for 15 to 20 years before we even knew about it because we're, we're just behind. If, if the public knows, so does our enemies. And I could see them keeping it quiet simply because of the intellectual property aspects of it, the, the advantage that they would have in some sort of potential conflict that could occur really at any point in, uh, in the world today. So yeah, I don't, you know, I, I try to stay away from any sort of the government knows this, the government's doing this. But if you look at it just in the context of the military industrial complex and how entrenched that is, not just in our government, but Tony Blair was, you know, one of the biggest players of, of especially with Saudi deals and selling arms to the Saudi government. And, and if you look at just how entrenched the military industrial complex is and all of the defense contractors and they're working closely with governments and getting money to help develop these things, it makes sense why we would be shut out of that conversation. So I don't think it necessarily has to be conspiracy. I think it just that that makes sense. It just makes sense why we would be self-preservation, absolutely mm-hmm. protecting the government. They would put it in the context of, oh, we're protecting the people. You know, we, we need to have these defense systems in place. We need to have an edge up on any potential threat. So I don't I don't think that I wouldn't even consider that conspiracy. I think that's just logic. Well, that's a, a very good answer to to a bit of a curveball <laughs> question that I threw threw at you at the end there. So I appreciate that. I appreciate especially that was more opinion and, and what have you rather than obviously your work that, that you did. Right, so I right. appreciate you answering Absolutely. that question. No Listen, problem. we really enjoyed the time speaking with you today. Our guest has been Dr. Michael P. Masters and his book is Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary academic approach to the UFO phenomenon. Thank you very much for spending your time with us. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It was great talking to you guys today. Where can our listeners learn a little bit more about you and where can, more importantly, they get the book? There's links to all of the different online booksellers through my website. Uh, It's just a shortened version of the name of the book, I'd Fly Obj, Identified Flying Objects. So it's idflyobj.com. And there's there's links to social media. There's uh, kind of a summary of the, the overall 
thesis behind the book, uh, a little more about me, my blog, and obviously the the links to to where they can find the book as well. So it's a it's a good hub. It's a good place to you know get in touch with me and and find out more about the project. And we'll put the links to those on our website as well, which is www.weirdwackywonderful.co.uk. Thanks again, Dr. Michael Masters. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Well, my grey matter is definitely in a knot. How about yours? My grey hair is in a knot. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it was really <laughs> cool. I liked it. It was, it was really good. I mean, I've got to be honest, there's parts of it that just totally blew my mind because it does answer a lot of questions, doesn't it? I just had a really weird thought. What if it's somebody in like a college who's doing their PhD and they're going to write a paper on their past? Well, that's what we were discussing. That's the whole point of this yeah. is that he says that's what they are doing. They're coming back and they're studying us. Yeah, no, I know. I'm just saying like PhD because um, Mike has his PhD and all that. So oh, he's now like, he's Mike. I said Mike in the beginning, didn't I? So <laughs> I'm going to refer to him as Dr. Michael P. Masters. You refer to him as Mike. Nah, I'll call him Dr. Mike. How's that? Dr. Mike. He'd probably be all right with that. Yeah, he'd probably be all right with that. <laughs> if you want to find more out about Mike, then please <laughs> go to our website, www.weirdwackywonderful.co.uk. You can also have a look at our show notes and click on some of the links. That'll take you to his work and the information that he has said that we can share with you. You can also listen to all of our shows there if you're not subscribed to the podcast, although we do recommend that you subscribe on iTunes and anywhere else that you get it, Spotify, etc., etc., etc. I don't think it needs that many etc., but, you know, got, you just want to keep we're talking. Out, we're out on lots of places. Yeah, you just want to keep talking into your mic. Fine, I'm going to... Uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> I see what you did there. That's rude. Well, you know. Okay. <laughs> we are. Yeah, you are. Right, okay. Well, until next time, guys, please make sure you stay weird, weird wacky, wacky, and, and wonderful. wonderful.